Welcome to the Bible Lab, my friends, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you so much for joining us. Friends, we are continuing our examination of the Gospel of Mark, and so we're going to jump right into it today. Our third theme for consideration is Mark cared deeply about telling the story of Jesus. Now, Mark is a very gifted storyteller. Mark's gospel is, on the one hand, a historical narrative. It's not a story. When I say, oh, I'm telling a story, we often don't know, is this a made-up story? Is this a true story? And so while Mark's gospel is a story, it's also a historical narrative. This is a story about real people in real places doing real, historically verifiable things. But it's more than just a historical narrative that you're going to read in a history book. It's a story, and it's a story that Mark tells well. Now, one of the things that really kind of sets apart well-told stories is that they invite you as the reader to enter into the story. You don't want to close the book. You want to keep going, turning page after page because you're so caught up. And that's what Mark has given us here, a beautiful, compelling story. But it's not just a historical narrative. It's not just any old story. Mark's gospel claims to be the defining story for all people at all times. Now, I, like any sensible person, love Lord of the Rings. I love the movies. I love the books even more. I don't think that I could pay my wife enough money to read Lord of the Rings. Now, I might think that shows questionable judgment, but I would not go so far as to say that the Lord of the Rings is the defining story for all people at all times, and all people must read and believe this story. That would be incredibly arrogant and foolish of me. But that's exactly what Mark does, because he is not just telling a story. This is the story of God's Messiah. And all people are to find their way into this story, to stay in this story, to believe this story, to cling to this story and proclaim this story. Mark tells the story of Jesus. Jesus, who is God's one true Messiah. Jesus, who has compassion on sinners like us. And Jesus, who gives his life for us. And so Jesus has opened the way for all people to return to fellowship with God. And we can do this through following in the footsteps of Jesus so that we can learn to love God and love others as Jesus did. And so that we can learn to live with sacrifice and service also as Jesus did. So in Mark's gospel, as you read through it and as you compare it with the other synoptic gospels, now remember, A synoptic gospel, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called synoptic because these three gospels tell the story of Jesus from a very similar point of view. In Mark's gospel, you get a lot less of Jesus's teaching than you're going to find in Matthew and Luke, but you get more of Jesus's deeds. And you also get some really very captivating uses of paradox and irony. Where do we see paradox and irony in Mark? Well, the first thing would be a crucified Messiah. That doesn't seem like it could be true. And that's what paradox is, two things that don't seem like they could be true, but are true. A crucified Messiah sounds like a contradiction in terms, but in Mark, that's exactly what we find. We also find the beloved son, as Jesus is called the beloved son by the father, but he's also forsaken by his father on the cross. In Mark, we see the servant who is the greatest. Mark 9.35, Jesus sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In Mark 10, 43 and 44, it shall not be so among you. Like you're not going to be grasping for the highest place like the Gentiles. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
In Mark, we see a command to lose your life in order to find it. Whoever would save his life, Jesus says in Mark 8.35, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And perhaps the highest, highest irony of all, the Savior who didn't save himself. Mark 15, 31 and 32. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He, Jesus, saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, Jesus is very obviously at the center of the story that Mark is trying to tell. And Mark is making very clear to you that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And that's what Mark wants to do. He wants to explain to you who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Jesus's identity and mission are inseparable. You can't understand one without understanding the other. And Mark makes it very clear from the opening words. In Mark 1.1, we read this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, both of these titles, Christ and Son of God, have their roots in the Old Testament. Now, we would appreciate here if Mark would like stop and say, hey, time out, y'all. Let me define Christ and let me define for you Son of God. He actually doesn't tell you because what Mark is going to do, he's not going to tell you, he's going to show you. If you read through Mark's gospel, he's going to show you what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, and for Jesus to be the Son of God. We, however, are going to pause right here, and we're going to look at the Old Testament background of both of these titles, Christ and Son of God, to help you understand what Mark meant when he said them. So Christ is a Greek word, and it means anointed one, and it's the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both mean anointed one. In the Old Testament, as you read through the narrative, you see priests being anointed. You see prophets being anointed. You see kings being anointed. And this anointing demonstrates that these people were being commissioned, set apart for a special task. Now, prophet, priest, and king, I didn't just pull those out of a hat. Obviously, we, we know that Jesus is the true priest, the great priest, the great high priest. He's the true prophet who not only speaks, but is the word of God and he's the king of kings. Now, of these three categories, Mark especially emphasizes Jesus's role as king. Mark 10, 47 through 48. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, there's a blind man, blind Bartimaeus. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. Remember, David's the great king of Israel. Have mercy on me. And they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Mark is portraying Jesus here as the promised king from the line of David. And remember, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that a king would come from his family who would bring in the eternal kingdom of God and would rule over God's people. So Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the king of kings, the son from David's line who will rule over God's people. But son of God is another term used in the Old Testament to depict the Messiah. In the Old Testament, the king of Israel, whoever it might be, is described as God's son. And God makes a promise to David, as we just said, that one day a descendant will come from David's line who will be king, not for 40, 50, 60, even 70 years, but will be king forever. God promised to never take his love away from this eternal son of David. And God said, I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Let me read it to you. It's 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you're dead, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house from my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now we know that when God here speaks of the sins of the son of David, he's speaking about David's sons that we read about in the book of Kings, not Jesus. But the ultimate son of David is Jesus, who will never sin and will never have to be disciplined for his own sin. He'll be disciplined for the sins of others. So when Mark uses the title at the very beginning, Son of God, it's heavy with messianic significance. It should make the reader think about what God promised David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And Mark shows that Jesus not only has the titles that you would want the Messiah to have, he has the relationship that you would want the Messiah to have. Jesus has a very special relationship with God. Jesus speaks the message of God. Mark 1.14 Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Mark 9, 7, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Also, Jesus obeyed the will of God. Mark 14, 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus speaks the message of God. He obeys the will of God. And like God, Jesus could forgive sins. Mark 2, 5 through 12 tells the famous story of the paralyzed man being lowered through the roof of the house. Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the scribes think to themselves, how can this man say that? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus can hear their thoughts. He knows their thoughts. And he says to them, tell you what, I'm going to tell this guy to get up and walk. And if I can tell this guy to get up and walk, I can also forgive his sins because only God can heal the paralyzed. So Jesus looks at the man and says, get up and walk, and gets up and walks proving that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus would be exalted to a special place of authority. In Mark 12, 36, Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. And he says that David himself, so remember, Jesus is the ancestor of David. In the Jewish mind, older is always better. But Jesus says the Messiah, even though he is newer, younger than David, the Messiah is greater than David. Because David himself declared the Lord said to my Lord. So David said, I heard Yahweh say to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So Jesus has this special place of authority. Now, Mark shows you as you read through his gospel, how you can recognize who Jesus is. And he does this by recording two confessions. These two confessions of who Jesus is come at pivotal points in the story. The first comes from Peter. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter very famously answers him, you are the Christ. Jesus' response to Peter is to immediately begin to teach the disciples about his death. He wants them to see that, yes, I am the Christ, but the Christ is here to die. The second person who confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is the centurion who witnesses Jesus die. It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. What Mark is showing you is that the person of faith, a person who sees with eyes opened by God himself, can see that Jesus is the son of God. 
But you only can see that Jesus is the Son of God when you behold the fact that he is dying for the sins of the world. That's what Mark is doing by putting these confessions in these crucial places. So what does it mean for Jesus? Right? We talked about in our last episode the Old Testament expectation of the Messiah, the expectation of Jesus's original audience, what they thought the Messiah would be. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God? And again, Mark does not stop and define it for you in a neat, tidy paragraph. He explains it by telling the story of Jesus. And Mark is a master storyteller. And so what he's done is he's taken the gospel of Mark and he's divided it into two halves. Peter's confession in Mark 8.29 is the hinge. We're going to see that the way Mark does this is after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, almost everything that happens from there on is focusing on the death of Jesus. These two halves of the story, they show us very different sides of Jesus, but we cannot separate these the parts of these story. We can't pick our favorite, just like we can't separate Jesus's personality. We can't say, well, I'm much more into the conquering king. I don't like that suffering servant stuff or vice versa. If we're going to understand who Jesus is, what Mark is doing, we need to see how the halves of these stories fit together. So let's look at the first half. In the first half of the gospel, Mark emphasizes Jesus's authoritative teaching. What does Jesus teach about? He teaches us good news about the nearness of God's kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus proclaims a call for people to follow him, to drop what they're doing, to leave everything, and to follow him. Jesus teaches with great authority in contrast to the religious leaders of his day. So Mark emphasizes in the first half of his gospel, Jesus' authoritative teaching, and he also emphasizes in the first half, Jesus' miraculous power. Now, for the sake of time, friends, I won't be able to read each one of these passages, but I am going to give you the scripture reference and encourage you to go back and read these for yourselves. So where do we see Jesus' miraculous power? First, we see it in his power over demons. Mark 1, 23 through 27, Jesus casts out demons. We also see Jesus' miraculous power over disease. Mark 3, 1 through 6, and many other times, Jesus heals men and women with physical disabilities. So we see Jesus' miraculous power over demons, over disease, and over disaster. The very famous story in Mark chapter 4 of Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has power over disease, over demons, over disaster, and over death. In Mark 5, 37 through 43, Jesus raises a little girl from the dead. So in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, Mark emphasizes Jesus' power and authority. Power being exhibited through miracles over the physical world and authority in his teaching and his forgiving of sins. But once Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, Mark shifts. And for the there on, Mark focuses on Jesus teaching his disciples about his death. That's the theme of Jesus' teaching. If you read through the second half of Mark's gospel, the theme of Jesus' teaching is his impending death and what that means for his followers. Mark 8, 31-38. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So even when Jesus talks about the future, he focuses on his death. The hostility of Jesus' opponents in the second half of his gospel increases to the boiling point where they are openly plotting his death. The majority of the second half of Mark's gospel focuses on Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, if you look at the entire book, more than a third of the entire book is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life where he enters into Jerusalem, is betrayed, arrested, crucified, and buried. And Jesus' story ends with an empty tomb. And Mark has left you here hanging with this empty tomb. Jesus has been teaching you that you, if you're going to follow him, you must be different from the world. Mark 10, 43 through 45. The Gentiles grasp and wrestle with one another for position and authority. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So friends, we often in our day are placed in front of a temptation, and that is to divide Jesus in half, to cling to either the Jesus of the first half of Mark, what we need is a Jesus with authority and power, or to cling to the second half of Mark, a Jesus who's gentle and kind. But friends, Jesus isn't one or the other, he's both and. And we must hold the two halves of Mark together so that we can see just a glimpse of how amazing Jesus really is. Jesus came with immense power and authority, but he came to serve and to save. And he's going to do this through dying. Now, I mentioned that Mark ends abruptly. The oldest manuscripts that we have end at Mark 16, 8. It says this, And they, the women who discovered the empty tomb and had been told by the angel that Jesus was risen, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Our oldest gospels end right there. More than likely, verses 9 through 20 were added later by someone who wasn't Mark. And you probably have those verses marked off in your Bible with a note from your editor saying, the oldest manuscripts don't contain these. And so what do we do with this ending? Why would Mark end at verse 8 like that? There are three theories. The first is that the ending was lost. So the answer, why would Mark end like that, is he didn't. He wrote an ending, a satisfying ending, where actually Jesus comes and he gives the Holy Spirit and he gives them the Great Commission and he ascends up into heaven and they go out worshiping and proclaiming instead of this kind of weird, awkward ending where people run away quiet and scared that Mark wouldn't end like this. So theory number one is the ending was lost. Theory number two is the ending wasn't written, that Mark meant to write a satisfying ending, but he either forgot or he was arrested before he could do it. And so someone trying to help out penned this ending many years later. I don't think either of those two are it. I I think the third option is the best. The ending is as intended. Mark wants to force you, the reader, to ask yourself the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? You've seen his power and his authority. There is no one like Jesus. You have heard exactly what he said he came to do, to rescue God's people through giving his life for their sins. 
He said he would die, and he did. He said he would walk out of the grave, and he did. So what are you going to do with Jesus? So friends, this story will transform you. If you believe it, if you enter into the story and dwell in this story, it will forever change you. And you come into the story by answering the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? By giving the answer, I'm going to give everything up and follow him. It's always worth it. So friends, the next time that we come back together, we're going to look at how Mark longed for the people to follow Jesus and the pattern of his life. But for now, take up and read, my friends. God bless. God bless.